Well, when I was a kid, I loved um, uh, Mr. Rogers, uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I mean, I just, I loved that show when I was a kid. I, I, uh, Fred Rogers, the host and the writer of that show, um, he, was, he just had this unbelievable ability to, to connect with the kid on the other side of the television screen. I mean, I remember watching him and just being so connected with him and feeling, feeling so loved and completely comfortable in my own skin when I would watch his show. And I, and I loved watching him every day come in and, and put on his comfy sweater and put on his comfy shoes and just the songs that he would sing, the lessons that he would teach us um, and the characters that he would interact with. And um, one thing about Fred Rogers that you may not know, he was also a man of deep faith. Um, he, he graduated from uh, Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Um, he was an ordained minister. Um, he, was, uh, famously, he famously talked about that he would wake up every day and spend two hours in quiet time in prayer and reading um, before he would go on his daily swim and then he would go about the business of the day. And one thing he said in, in an interview that I listened to a while back that really stuck out to me, and the reason why I bring him up uh, tonight, he said this. He said, there is, there's one thing that evil cannot stand, and that is forgiveness. You know, Satan would want nothing more than as we go through this, this Easter week, as we talk about what we're going to talk about tonight, as we go through the story of Easter, the story of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross, the fact that he defeated death, the fact that he, he saved us from our sins. I mean, Satan would want nothing more than that story to fall on deaf ears and hardened hearts. He, that would, there would be no greater win for him that that, that that story would just kind of just roll off, roll off of us and not have any effect on our life. Because more than likely this story, this Easter story, this story of Christ's sacrifice and the story of our forgiveness of our sins. I mean, honestly, the majority of us in here, we've probably heard this story hundreds of times. And if you're like, if you're like me, sometimes you, you hear this story, you hear it one more time. And many times I, I just kind of file it away in the back of my mind. Like, like a birthday present I received when I was a kid I remember, I remember it was special, and I remember uh, I felt loved when I received that gift, but its impact on my daily life is, is pretty minimal, or sometimes not even existent. So this night, this Holy Thursday, this is a night that we come together to remember, to simply pause and reflect and remember this story. Tonight's, tonight's goal is pretty simple, like I said. So we're, we're going to spend some time talking about Christ's crucifixion. We're going to read the story. We're going to look at what Christ did for us on the cross. And then, and then we're going to remember it the way that Jesus told us to remember it. We're going to take communion together. Um, so we're going to do that as a church family. We're going to break bread and we're going to drink from the cup just to remember Christ's broken body and blood that was spilled for us um, for the, to the obedience to his father and for the forgiveness of our sins. So on Sunday, we started this story, this Palm Sunday. Um, we started with Jesus entering into the city of Jerusalem. And we saw that there was a good reason for us to hope in God's plan. And we saw that, that God was beginning a plan to redeem us and reconcile us back to himself. It was Christ entered in Jerusalem that day on a donkey with palm branches waving. A plan was set forth to reconcile us back to him. It was a plan that was set forth, that was leading to his inevitable suffering and death and my forgiveness and life. So we're gonna read the story. So if you got your Bibles, you're gonna be in Matthew 27. 
Um, we're going we're gonna to pick up in verse 11. Um, so if you got your Bibles, just go ahead and um, open those up. Matthew 27, we'll be reading along. and We'll kind of stop periodically to, to talk about the story a little bit. Um, so it'll, it'll be up on the screens as well. You can follow along. So Matthew 27, um, starting in verse 11. So here we go. So now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave them no answer, not even to a single charge, so that, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was, one, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to, him, said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to, them, said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he, had, he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released him. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Okay, let's stop right there. Let's talk about what's happened up until this point. So well, the first question I want to, to, to ask tonight when reading this is, why did Jesus have to die? I mean, why did it have to go down this way? Why, why did Jesus have to suffer in the way that he suffered? Why did he have to die? But before we answer that question, we have to look at the way, to see how Jesus lived. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus' death would have meant nothing more than any other death in human history if he were not perfect. He was, he was the perfect sacrifice. His absence of sin in his life allows for our presence with God. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. So looking back at this passage in Matthew, we see a trial of an innocent man. Jesus was perfect, without fault. And I don't, I don't know about you guys, but when I hear stories in the news about someone who has been, who's been wrongly convicted um, of a crime and spends time in prison, like that, those are stories that like break my heart. I mean, I heard a story this week about a guy who, who lived in Chicago who spent 24 years in prison after he was convicted of murder, and now DNA, DNA evidence has completely exonerated him. 
And he used to work for the, the, uh, the White so- Chicago White Sox, and the Chicago White Sox gave him his job back. And, and like, it was just, it, was, it turned out to be a cool story. But, but 24 years for a crime you did not commit. I mean, could you imagine the pain? I mean, 24 years away from your kids and your family and life just going on without you, all for something you didn't even do. And so... I can't imagine what that would feel like. I couldn't imagine what Jesus was going through as he was sitting here witnessing these things and he was being accused. He was being treated as a criminal. And when Jesus was asked uh, who, who he was, he didn't deny who he was. Also, he didn't argue or deny the charges that were being brought against him. You know, one, because one of the charges that they were, they were bringing against him is the fact that he was saying that he was God. And, well, we know that to be the truth. And two, Jesus knew how this was going to play out, no matter what. Now, Pilate was put in an impossible position. So he gave the people a choice. You know, like it said in, like it said in that passage, it was a custom that every year that, that the, the Roman governor would offer up a prisoner, a Jewish prisoner, that he would release um, for the people, whoever they wanted. And so he decided he would choose Barabbas. Barabbas was a notorious criminal. He was a murderer. And I'm sure Pilate thought in the back of his head, surely people wouldn't want Barabbas. There's there's no way that you would want someone like Barabbas roaming the streets of Jerusalem over Jesus. I I mean, Jesus Jesus was someone who, he was perfect. I I mean, there's no way. Why would you want Barabbas over Jesus? But you see that the people do. Let's read it again in verse 20. It says, Now the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. You know, and as I read this, um, th- this passage um, earlier this week as I was getting ready, like I remember just having kind of this feeling of like, man, what is wrong with these people? Like what is, what is are you people crazy? I mean, they're just making me just mad. Like how could they possibly let this happen? How could they be persuaded this way and just be so evil? And I remember as I was feeling like feeling pretty judgy towards these people, I remember God convicted me um, of this. And, and what he said, and what, what God convicted me of is, is that I choose Barabbas over Jesus every single day of my life. Every time we choose sin, every time we choose things in life that are destructive, every time we destructive of life instead of life-giving, we choose Barabbas over Jesus. You know, Barabbas represents those sinful choices in our life. You know, I am no better than those people as I sit there and judge them. I am no better than those people. Those those sinful choices that I make over Jesus, those choices in my sins are just as much as guilty as condemning Jesus to the cross as those people. My voice is a voice in that crowd screaming Barabbas. Something else that's interesting in this story is what the crowd shouted as Jesus was condemned to die in 25 and 26. It says, and all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. I don't know if God was speaking through the crowd that day, but it's pretty interesting. Uh, but I, I'm pretty glad that Jesus' blood is on us. 
and is on our children. And for those that believe, it's, it's, it's just interesting symbolism for the people to be shouting that on the day that Jesus was sentenced to his death. It, it foreshadows what the sacrifice of Christ is going to accomplish. So Pilate sent Jesus to be scourged and whipped and then to be crucified. The Roman process for this was something that they had mastered. The Romans were, perf- were perfectionists when it came to afflicting pain and death on people. So they had mastered this process. Um, in fact, in, in many times in that day that when someone was sk- sentenced to, to the scourging and then to be crucified, there'd be many times that people wouldn't even survive the scourging. They wouldn't even make it to the process of crucifixion. And so it, Jesus was stripped of his clothes in, in the traditional Roman practice, they, uh, they would have tied uh, the, 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 um, the condemned person's hands to a pole and they would have exposed the backside and they would use short leather whips with iron balls and sharp objects like, like bone and rocks that would be braided into the leather. And these two things, they serve two different functions and two different purposes. The iron ball, when hitting the flesh, would cause deep contusions it was like it was tenderizing the flesh. And as the sharp objects would, would penetrate, they, as the sharp objects would hit the skin, they could penetrate more, more, more deeply and, and cause more, more damage. And the skin would be ripped from the bone. The blood loss would have been incredible. It, it was also common that in many of these accounts um, that historians talk about that, that, that ribs would be exposed. Ribs would be, would be broken or even severed in this process. I mean, his body had to be in shock. His heart was laboring. Some doctors would say that the trauma to your internal organs to go through something like this would be equivalent to you getting into a car accident at a high rate of speed without wearing a seatbelt. Jesus was already dying. So once he endured this unbelievable physical pain and suffering, he was subject to emotional pain. The soldiers began to taunt him. We'll pick up the the story in verse 27. It says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put put, put a scarlet robe on him. And twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him. And they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Jesus was betrayed. He was wrongfully condemned. He was mocked and ridiculed. He was publicly stripped naked. Um. The soldiers were breaking him physically, emotionally, and mentally. And then the verse says that they led him away to be crucified. Um, They more than likely placed the crossbar um, of the cross onto Jesus' back. Uh, And that that crossbar could weigh up to about 125 pounds. And they would place place that upon his bloody and broken and busted up back. In fact, Jesus was too weak to even carry it. He had to have help. And they led him to the place where he was to die, where they would crucify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The history of crucifixion goes back before the time of Jesus. 
It has been used as, as a form of death penalty going all the way back to the Persians. And many, and many historians believe, maybe even the Assyrians or the Babylonians, it was an ancient practice. This was not something that was new. But once again, the Romans stepped up their game. They perfected the art of crucifixion. It was designed to produce a slow death and maximize pain. It was, it was even it was even considered too cruel for them to, to use it on their own citizens. Crucifixion was designated for, for foreigners, for slaves, or for the worst of the worst when it came to criminals. Jesus was led to the place where he was to be nailed to the cross. They laid him down and drove spikes that would have been five to seven inches long, more than likely into his wrist between the bones of his arms so they would be able to hold the weight of a man. And then they nailed a spike into his feet. And then Jesus was placed upright on the vertical beam. And the slow death of crucifixion would begin. The process of dying this way is excruciating and painfully slow. There would be many accounts where someone would take days to die in this, during this process. But what we see, and many, many historians and theologians believe that Jesus died relatively quickly from this process, about three to six hours. So we pick up the story again in verse 45. It says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And then at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lame sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then our Lord Jesus died. It was It was finished. Our, our sufficient sacrifice for our sins was complete. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it is believed at that moment is when the sins of the world were transferred to Jesus and that the wrath of God was poured out upon him. I mean, could you imagine what Jesus would, had, had felt in that moment? The guilt and the shame of all the sin. I mean, have you ever felt guilt and shame from one sin? I know I have. Guilt and shame in the weight of one sin can be life-draining. It can be debilitating. It can be awful. Could you imagine the weight and shame and guilt of the sins, of your sins, of my sins, of every sin that has ever been committed and every sin that ever will be committed? That is what Jesus felt in that moment. He must have been completely heartbroken as the wrath of his father was being poured out upon him. That is what Jesus did for us as our sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, for, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So back to that original question, why did Jesus have to die? Why did this have to happen? And we, and we obviously we look to Scripture and we find an answer for this. And we see an answer for this in Hebrews uh, chapter 10. And, and the purpose of Hebrews, Hebrews was written um, 
for the Jews. It was written that they would know and understand and be convinced and be reminded that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was who he said he was. And in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, starting in verse 1, it says this, For since the law has been but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, have been, uh, ha- having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is, po- for it is impossible for blood, the blood of bulls and goats, to take away, the, take away sins. What the writer of Hebrews is saying here is the process of your burnt offerings, the process of sacrificing these animals, it is not sufficient. It's not going to be enough. There's no amount of animals. There's no amount of blood. There's no amount of of burnt offerings or sacrifices that you can make that would be sufficient for your sins. But verse 5, it says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you take no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of your book. What Jesus is saying is, I will be that sacrifice. My body will be that sacrifice. My body will be sufficient. The things that you have been doing are not sufficient, but God is sending me and, and the body that I have to be broken, and it will be sufficient for your sins. In verse 8, it says, when he, said, when, he, uh, when he said above that you have neither desire nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Only Christ's sacrifice is good enough. That is why he had to die. That is why he had to do what he had to do. There's nothing that we can do. There was nothing that we would be able to to offer to God that would be sufficient. The burnt offerings that people were offering were not sufficient. They were not enough. So for us today, doing more good than bad is not enough. Going to church is not enough. Having good kids is not enough. Being successful and having money is not enough. Going to a prestigious college is not enough. Going on mission trips is not enough. Just knowing the Bible is not enough. Giving money is not enough. Being a nice person is not enough. Christ is enough. Christ's body was offered up once and for all. That is what we believe. That is what our hope is in. That is our hope in his suffering. That Jesus Christ is the way of our salvation. And through this that we receive forgiveness of our sins and we are given eternal life. Listen to me. It has nothing to do with the things that you do. It has everything to do with the things that he has already done. And tonight we remember that. Tonight we remember the work and the suffering of Christ. It is a night that we remember that our sins were paid for and our debt was washed away. And we remember what the price was for that sin. And we remember what the price was for that debt. By thinking and pausing what Christ endured for us on the cross. 
So we remember the cross and Christ's body that was broken and his blood that was spilled for us. That is what our hope is in. As Christ suffered, our hope, it's, it's, it, our hope can be found that his sacrifice was enough for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for that sacrifice. God, we thank you that it is enough. God, I thank you that it is not left up to me. It's not left up to the things that I do. Um, but God, it is left up to you. The work of, that you accomplished on the cross is enough. And God, I just thank you for that. And God, I pray that anything that we ever just gets in the way of that, that we feel like we have to, we have to do more, we have to, to say more, and we have to, to, to do all these things in order to please you. God, know that, that through Christ, when Christ's blood has covered us, God, all that has been poured out on Christ on the cross. And God, I just tonight as we remember and as we think about your sacrifice that was done for us, and God, as in just a moment as we take communion together, God, I pray let this time just be rich, that this time would be full of your spirit, that it would be active in this room, God, that we would be mindful, God, that this would not be a story that would just fall to the wayside once again when we leave this place, but God, we would know what you've done for us. And one, we wouldn't want to tell other people about it. God, that we'd also let this story seep into our everyday life and God, we love you, and we thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.